Am I on? Now I'm on. Okay, so you, ever, you didn't hear all of that commotion. That's good. That's good. Hi. We're here, and I'm glad to see you guys. Um, I'm excited for today's message. Um, I hope you are too, but before we get there, a couple of announcements. If you are a first-time guest, thank you for being here this morning. Uh, as a way of, for us to say thank you, uh, in the back there's a bag there you can grab. Um, I learned that we are moving back towards visitor cards, so um, soon we'll have those in the seat backs. You can fill those out and turn those in. That way we can keep in touch with you, let you know what's going on. Um, if you missed the opportunity of giving up here, we still have the kiosk in the back. We still have ways to get back there. Um, so thank you for continuing to be faithful in your giving. Uh, yesterday we had our scrapbooking event, and um, I was here um, for other reasons, um, but it was a good time. We had a few ladies show up. We had some food, and uh, I think you, they enjoyed it. Did you guys enjoy it? Yeah. But yeah, so it was a lot of fun. So I share that to encourage you. The next time we have an event, get your biscuits here and, and, and enjoy the time together. It's a good time to get to know one another. Yeah, so Connie just said that, that we had all sorts of different things. Um, Allison, my wife, she took all of her Christmas cards and put them on a ring. Uh, my kids made little books. Um, we had bead stuff going on, cards, traditional scrapbooking. I mean, it was pretty crazy. There was a lot of stuff down there yesterday. So when we have these kind of things, come, come out and, and enjoy it because it's there for you to help build community, to help build friendship, uh, and it was a really good time. Uh, I also want to make you aware again of our uh, business cards. Back there at the guest table, we have business cards that you can take with you to use as a way to invite people to church. As you can see, it's got our address, our service times, and uh, just a, a great way to say, hey, this is where we're at. It's easy, something that they can keep uh, with them. So please take a few of them. We've got, I think it's about 500. So if we get what, half of that to show up to church, we got like three services, so that's pretty good. So grab some of those, take them with you. This next, next, next subject, I see, I don't even want to talk about it, because um, I have, uh, I have, I personally have mixed feelings about it, but I learned recently that we are in violation of the mask mandate. Um, so I need to encourage you that we have masks, to wear masks, um, and it's only till April 10th because the governor just signed a bill that it ends the mask mandate on the 10th. Um, so there it is. I've said it. It's out there. Um, uh, we, I'm not getting into that argument right now. <laughs> um, so... There it is. Uh, good morning. <laughs> now that we're all uncomfortable, let's get into a, a subject that's going to make us more uncomfortable. Um, today's message is probably going to hit us to the core. Um, as I was writing it, it really challenged me. So this morning, you might have feelings of anger. You might have feelings of conviction. You might have feelings of like, I don't like this, but at the end of the message, 
the hope is, is that you are challenged, encouraged, and ready to go out and change the world, because that's what we're here for. And sometimes we need hard messages, quote-unquote hard messages, to propel us, to move us in the direction that God wants us to grow. But before we do that, a quick recap. A couple weeks ago, we looked at this idea of who I am is revealed by what comes out of me. We looked at the story of Jesus talking about it's not what you eat, what goes inside of you that makes you unclean. Because in the Jewish culture, that's what made you unclean. It was the things you touched, the things you ate. But Jesus said, no, it's what comes out of you. It's what comes out of the heart of man that makes you unclean. And this idea that our character matters and who we are matters. And that we need to have our character changed by Jesus to reflect his. And as we do that, he uses us to draw people towards him. You know, and this idea, does my lifestyle, the way I live, draw people towards Jesus, or does it repel them from him? Kind of a, a big question. And then last week, we looked at this idea that we can't borrow someone else's relationship with Christ. It must be our own. I shared my story of how I grew up in church and how for all of my adolescence and even into my teenage years, I borrowed mom's faith. But it wasn't until I was 19 that it became my own. And we saw Peter, how it was the same thing for him. It wasn't because of the influence of what other people were saying, but he came to the realization that Jesus was the Christ, and he declared it because the Father had revealed it to him. The relationship must be our own. And Jesus desires for all of us to have this personal relationship with him. That's why I was so encouraged with uh, the word we heard this morning, the idea of God wanting us to come and sit in his lap. That's who he is. That's what he wants. Like when I get home from school, or from school, from work, and my kids run to the door to hug me, that's how God wants it to be with him, us to run to him and embrace him. Uh, it has to be our own personal relationship. Now, go with me to a time, a place that's both similar to our time, but drastically different. A time where people were ruled, a time where people clawed for power and prestige. A time where honoring God was nearly non-existent. People did what they wanted, listened to false prophets. You know, I can see the king sitting on his throne. Jeremiah standing before him, declaring God's truth. Repent, because destruction is coming. It's coming. And the false prophets, the seers, saying, don't worry about it. It's all right. I haven't received that message. This guy's off his rocker. And then he goes, the king, and burns the scrolls that the scriptures were written on. And then there it is. Here comes Babylon. They come and they take over. They overthrow you. A time where kings were overthrown, sometimes almost as soon as they came into power. Nations would fall and rise. Nations imprisoning nations, subjugating an entire people. This happening because the people had forgotten their God. He was not with them, not because he had moved away, but because they had moved away. They told him he was no longer welcome. Yet, during all of this, during this destruction, during this time of turmoil, 
you hear a story of hope, a story of something that's coming in the future. So as your place of worship is being destroyed, as your homes are set to fire, as you are walking this trail to a foreign land, you hear this message that one day things will be restored. That this branch of David will come and he will sit on his throne forever. That the Son of Man would come on the clouds with glory and power and he would be able to approach the Ancient of Days and his kingdom would never be destroyed. You hear the prophecy that there will be one, one, a voice crying in the wilderness to prepare a way that Elijah was going to come back and that he was going to make everything known that for days, months, years, decades, centuries, and millenniums, you wait and you wait hoping, expecting, praying, wishing that the promise would just arrive. All the while, you are constantly conquered. You're overrun. Your culture is disappearing. Your language is being mixed with those that rule you. They force their gods upon you. And you wonder if any of what you've been told or taught is true. You know, I can imagine as the people sat in their homes around their tables, stood in the courtyards, walked the streets, that they would talk. You remember when Daniel said? You remember when Jeremiah said? Didn't Isaiah say? They would remind themselves of the promises, teaching their children and reassuring themselves that it would come. It has to come. I mean, he delivered us from Israel. Why not now? And then one day, you hear of some guy who wears camel hair and eats locusts and honey, crying in the wilderness, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. There is, no one that, there, there is one that comes that is more powerful than I, one whose sandals I am not worthy to, to stoop down and loose. I baptize with water for repentance, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So you run. You run to the Jordan. Your hopes are up. Your excitement is going. You are ready. It's building. Could this be it? After 3,000 years, has the time come? You hear the message. You believe the message. And you are baptized by John in the Jordan. But yet there's still some that are like, no, this isn't it. This can't be it. Not this way. And while you're there in the Jordan, you see someone walk up to John. It looks as though there may be a disagreement, so you hurry to make your way over to here, but by the time you get there, the conversation has ended. So you find the nearest person, and you ask, what, what was that about? What were they talking about? And they're like, well, it's that guy, his name's Jesus, and he wanted to be baptized by John, but John's like, There's, I'm not supposed to be baptizing you. you. You need to baptize me. And Jesus is like, no, no. This is the way it's supposed to be, John. You need to baptize me. So now you're eagerly watching to see what's going to happen. As they go into the water, your excitement is not disappointed. You see something that looks like a dove coming down from the sky and resting upon Jesus. And then you hear a voice, a voice you've never heard before. 
And you know it's not from around you, it's not behind you, but almost if it's coming from above you. This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. You can't believe your eyes. All you want to do is talk to Jesus. You've got to get to him. You've got to ask him. But before you know it, he disappears into the wilderness. For days, you try to find him. You seek him out. You're hearing stories. You feel like you're there. But days turn into years, and you just you can't seem to find him. You hear the stories of paralytics being healed, taking up their mats and walking. You hear stories about people that are born blind, that now have sight. You talk to a fisherman that was on the Sea of Galilee and the story of a storm that was about to overthrow the boat and it just stopped. And everybody's saying, that's because Jesus was on that boat. You hear the stories. You know you're getting close. The pursuit can't end now. And finally, there he is. After all of this time, he's there. And it's only fitting that you find him in Jerusalem, the holy city. You make your way through the crowd. You're pushing, you're shoving. You're trying to be polite, but not today. Not today. This is it, and you're going to get your opportunity. You're not going to let it pass. You need to see him closer. You need to talk with him because everything you've heard and everything you've learned seems to be a contradiction. You see, if he is the one, what is taking so long for the uprising? If he is the one, why isn't he wanting to make a name for himself? If he is the one, where's the sign-up sheet to overthrow the Roman government? Because you know he's got 12 that walk with him, and you just want in on it. Because you see, everything you've heard, everything he does is for everybody else. All he talks about is loving people and turning to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. But you're like, but you've done nothing to start up this kingdom of, of heaven. You've done nothing. I don't see anything. We need a king. We need a leader. We need a savior. So I'm here to set the record straight. Are you him or aren't you him? And as you get close enough to hear, you hear this exchange. Then Jesus began to tell them, that he, the Son of Man, would suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the leaders, the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed, and three days later he would rise again. As he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and told him he shouldn't say things like that. Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, and then he said to Peter very sternly, Get away from me, Satan. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Then he called his disciples and the crowds to come over and listen. If any of you wants to be my follower, he told them, you must put aside your selfish ambitions, shoulder your cross, and follow me. If you, are try, if you try to keep your life for yourself, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will find true life. And how do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul in the process? Is anything worth more than your soul? If a person is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, I, the Son of Man, will be ashamed of that person when I return in the glory of my Father. It's the holy angels. 
Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. And as we go through this text, Lord, I pray that you would help our hearts to remain soft. I pray that you would open our ears to hear, our minds to understand, to hear and know what it is you are saying. I pray this morning, Lord, that you would speak to us as we go through this story. We bless you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. That passage is from Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. And what does it mean? What is this talk of Jesus suffering and dying? Why did Jesus rebuke Peter? What does take up your cross mean? And ashamed before my father? You know, as I was putting this message together, I had this thought. True life is only found when we die to ourselves. True life is only found when we die to ourselves. Now I can see the look on some of your faces. I kind of feel like Nolan Ryan did when he played against the Chicago White Sox and Robin Ventura rushed the mound. I'm not going to put you in a headlock. Just We're going we're gonna to get through this. We're going to get through this. We, <laughs> I think Connie knows exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, as we go through this text, we'll, this, this statement will make more and more sense. So this story, this is now the first of three predictions by Jesus about his coming death. So let's look at verses 31 through 33 again. Then Jesus began to tell them that he, the Son of Man, would suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the leaders, the leading priests and the teachers of, the, of religious law. He would be killed, and three days later, he would rise again. As he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and told them he shouldn't say things like that. Jesus turned and looked at his disciples and then said to Peter very sternly, Get away from me, Satan. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. You know, as I read this story, I am able to put myself into Peter's shoes. As I shared last week, I can relate with Peter. I can put my foot in my mouth uh, quite easily and um, speak up before I should. But here we see Jesus is preparing his disciples for what's going to come. It says he's, he's talking to them plainly. He's explaining to them what's going to happen. And I know we've talked about it. I've mentioned it quite a bit, almost at nauseum. But People weren't looking for a savior like Jesus. They were looking for a military leader. They wanted somebody to overthrow the government. So when Jesus starts talking about the Son of Man must suffer and die, it doesn't make sense. The, the Son of Man statement. See, Jesus is the only one that uses this name for himself. He is the only one that attributes it to himself. No one else calls him this name. And he, it's, used over eight, it's used 81 times throughout the Gospels. So where does this name come from? Well, it comes from the book of Daniel. And it's used three times by Daniel in a prophecy about the coming uh, Messiah. In Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14, it says, In my vision at night I looked. 
And there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So imagine you're an Israelite, and this is what you have grown up knowing. This is what you have grown up learning. So you enter Jesus, who exclusively relates himself to the Son of Man. So you are able to make that correlation immediately. Daniel said Son of Man. Jesus is calling himself the Son of Man. I have a mental image of what this is, of what this means. The Son of Man is one that's coming in authority, in glory, in sovereign power, and all people will worship him, and his dominion will be everlasting. It can't pass away, and his kingdom can never be destroyed. The see, the, that has the makings of making us think military. They were overthrown. They were going to overthrow who they were under. You see, Jesus, he comes in authority. We see many times throughout the Gospels, they were amazed at the authority at which he taught. But see, his dis when he displays his authority and his power, he does it in meekness. Now, meekness is not to be confused with weakness. Although they rhyme, they do not mean the same thing. Weakness, we know what that means. Meekness is power under control. Jesus knows his power. He knows his authority, but he has it under control. He uses it to advance the kingdom. He doesn't abuse it. He doesn't use it for personal gain. Instead of building a name for himself, he tells people that he heals, don't tell anybody. He talks of serving. He talks of loving. He talks of giving. He talks about faith, sowing and reaping. He teaches that our character is paramount to our faith and our witness because it's from our character that we act. So when Peter hears Jesus saying that the Son of Man must suffer and die, it is completely foreign. It doesn't make sense. And I would imagine many of the disciples felt the same way. Uh, I think Peter's just the only one that had enough guts to say something to him. And I'll tell you why I say that here in just a second. But I love how Peter takes Jesus aside as if, I don't want to cause a scene, but Jesus, come here, come here, come here. What are you talking about? You can't die. And the disciples make their way a little bit closer over to him. You know, but Peter doesn't realize the stage has already been set. The disciples are there. There's a crowd of people there. So no matter what happens, people are going to hear. What does Jesus do? He looks at the disciples. They were close enough to hear. And he turns to Peter and he rebukes him. We understand Peter's point of view. We understand his position. But why such a harsh reaction to Peter? Why not something gentle? Why not something soft? I had two thoughts. The first is this. Jesus won't even entertain the temptation. He wasn't immune to temptation. As we looked at back during Christmas, Jesus was 100% man, 100% God. The Bible says he was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted, yet was without sin. So after Jesus goes through the wilderness, the devil wasn't like, you got me, three and out, I'm done. No, I would imagine for Jesus' entire life, 
Satan is doing everything he can. He and his little minions are seeking any opportunity to try to get him to fail, to get him to stumble, to get him to sin. Because if that happens, the whole plan is off. The game is over. So Jesus, knowing the cost, knowing what it could mean, won't even entertain it. He won't even look at it. He tells him, get behind me, Satan. How many times do we entertain the temptation? Like, what? Yeah, that's an old habit, but I think I can overpower it. I think I can do it. And then our thought grows into action. You know, what Peter was suggesting had to be tempting because Jesus knew what he was about to go through. He knew what was going to happen to him. Jesus wouldn't entertain the idea. He stopped it before it could even begin to grow. The second thing is he was heavenly minded. He was trying to get his disciples for three years to think things in a different way. It was not so much about the law. It was about the spiritual side of things. It was a spiritual thing. If my insight, if who I am, if my character is one that is focused on spiritual things, on heavenly things, then what I do will naturally please God. Because now who I am, who my what my character is, is molded after God. But see, they were still having a hard time shifting that, that idea, shifting from that idea of a physical kingdom to a spiritual kingdom. You know, so many times God is trying to prepare us for something. He's trying to use us. He's trying to train us, prepare us, teach us. And a lot of times it looks like we're not going to be able to do it. It's too hard, so we push against it. We can't see how it's going to be done. We don't have the finances. We don't have the strength. We don't have the energy. We don't have the fill in the blank. Seeing things only with our physical eyes and not with our spiritual eyes. You know, can I be vulnerable with you for a minute? Um, I would, sometimes I'm, I'm disappointed. I, I'm discouraged. Um, I've shared after we've done outreaches, our backpack, the trunk or treat, those things. I was hoping, I was believing that this place would be filled up, that we would have people here, that we would uh, see immediate results. And in the physical, it looked like I was failing, that I was doing something wrong. But when I step back and I look at it through spiritual eyes, God is training me. He's teaching me. He's showing me that we'll get there because the dream is here. It's here. I believe with all of my heart this church is going to do something amazing to impact this community, to impact this city. I believe it. The dream is there. Maybe I'm not ready yet, and I still have some learning to do. I have some growing to do. But when I look at it with my spiritual eyes, I know God is doing something. We need to see things with our spiritual eyes. We need to be heavenly minded. So then Jesus turns and he addresses the crowd. 
verses 34 through 37. Then he called his disciples and the crowds to come over and listen. If any of you wants to be my follower, he told them, you must put aside your selfish ambition, shoulder your cross, and follow me. If you try to keep your life for yourself, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will find true life. And how do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul in the process? Is anything worth more than your soul? This might seem out of place, but it's in lockstep with everything that Jesus has been teaching them. You know, in this world, especially here in the good old U.S. of A., it is a dog-eat-dog world. I'm going to get mine. I got to get my stuff. I got to get my money. I got to get my houses. I got to get my cars. And, you know, some people I will backstab. I will ruin. I will lie. I will cheat. I will steal to do whatever I have to to get mine. As if because we're alive, we deserve whatever we want in life. Now, let me make this clear. I am not saying it is wrong or sinful to be independently wealthy, to have nice things, to pursue happiness, to pursue dreams for working hard for what you have. I'm not saying that. But when we are willing to forfeit our soul in pursuit of it, it is not worth the cost. Your soul is eternal. Your soul is forever. Why give that up for things that moth and rust will eat and destroy, that lose value, that, that mean nothing in the grand scheme of things. If my pursuit of happiness makes me a terrible person, destroys my family, leaves me without true friendships, but I have money, parties, mansions, and stuff, what good is it? There is coming a day when none of it will matter. So yes, go out, work, earn, Get your things, but don't lose sight of the heavenly things. Don't lose sight of what really matters. Charity to our fellow man, caring for the orphan and the widow, loving our neighbors as ourselves, no matter how miserable they make you or drive you nuts or all of those things that neighbors can be. We need to love them as ourselves. We need to be the light of Christ to a world that is on a fast track to destruction. We are the light. We are the light. Jesus is our best example. Remember what he said to his disciples. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. The life of the believer is loving people through service, to put others before ourselves. Jesus also said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. All of these things will be added unto you. When? When we seek heavenly things first. He knows what you need. He will provide what you need. He is there and he will add all of these things to you when we seek the heavenly things first. The thing that's amazing about seeking the heavenly things first, our mind sh shifts. We see things differently. You know what? Maybe I don't need that anymore. I don't even want that anymore. And now it looks different. My desires are different. It's a desire for heavenly things. True life is only found when we die to ourselves. How does Jesus close? Mark 38. 
Verse 38. If a person is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, do we live in those days? I would say 100%. I, the Son of Man, will be ashamed of that person when I return in the glory of my Father with the holy angels. What is Jesus saying in this statement? Be bold in your faith. The Christian life is not one that is meant to be lived in isolation. It's one that we are meant to declare, to share with people. You realize that inside of you, you carry the hope of the world. Inside of you is the one that brings peace and love and strength and restoration. And if we don't share it with them, how do they know? We are supposed to be bold. We can't be people that claim to be a Christian or a Christ follower on Sunday and Monday through Saturday be something completely different. Our mindset is to be on things of heaven and proclaiming the gospel in love because that's what the gospel is. For God so loved. For God so loved. You know, there may be a day, and Jesus spoke of it, where persecution comes. I've been teased for my faith. I have been put down. I've been made fun of. I probably wouldn't say that's real persecution when I talk to my missionary friends from China or I hear the stories of the Middle East. We really don't know persecution on that level. But when any persecution, when any persecution comes, are you going to be willing to stand there and say, no, I am a Christ follower. I believe in what he said that he died for my sins, he rose again, and now he sits at the right hand of the power. Are you going to be able to stand and proudly proclaim who you are in Jesus? If you will, on the day of Jesus' return, you are right there with him. You are right there. Listen, something happens in the heart of the person that is willing to die to self daily and follow Jesus. It's not always easy, but it's one of the best decisions that we could ever make because in it we find true life. True life is found in service and in sacrifice. True life is found in loving people and showing them the love and grace of Jesus. True life is only found when we die to ourselves. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. And while this one can kind of hit us where we don't like, I pray that you would speak to us right now in this moment. That our mind set would change, that it would shift towards heavenly things, put a desire inside of us to seek the heavenly things, to see things with our spiritual eyes. Lord, that we would think of others before ourselves, that we would serve people, love people, give to people, be radical in our generosity with our times and our talents, our resources, that we would be like you were and are. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us throughout this week, that you would show us ways, show us places where we need to die to ourselves. I thank you for your word, and I thank you that it challenges us, that it doesn't let us sit in, in an idle place, but it 
pushes us, it propels us to grow. Thank you for that, Lord, because we need it. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Before I let you go, I have a reflection and a challenge for you. Reflection is this. Take inventory of the things that Jesus is preparing you for. Think about those things. And then think about whether you are mindful of the things of God. And the challenge is this. Are you open to what God is preparing you for? You all have a gift. You all have talents. You all have things that you can do for the kingdom. What is God preparing you for? And then take some time this week in prayer and ask God to make you more mindful of the things of God, of heaven. Because my friends, it's not always about us. We like to think it is, but it's not always about us. We need to be aware and be willing to die to self and seek first the kingdom of God, to be a people that are willing to share our faith without shame because this world needs to hear and know the love of Jesus. Amen? Amen. All right. I love you guys. Thank you for being here. Have a fabulous week. God bless.